Lord. I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your pew Bibles to Judges chapter 14 as we continue in our sermon series through this book. And to give us some context, we'll actually be starting at chapter 13, verse 24, two verses before the beginning of 14. And while you're turning there, I want to say again what a privilege it is to preach and proclaim the truths of Scripture to you. I'm thankful for a church that allows interns to do this and to grow and, and progress in the preaching of God's Word. God's Word indeed is living and active and has the power to transform hearts. And so it's an incredible joy to bring God's Word before you now. Before we read, let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh, great God, we know that we were created for intimate communion with you. And we know that you speak to us through the scriptures. And as we come tonight to a passage full of strange things and riddles and questions and weird things, Lord, even questions that we ourselves are faced with, we ask earnestly, bring these ancient words to bear upon our hearts even today so that we will know you all the more, love you better, and walk with you wholeheartedly. We ask all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're beginning at chapter 24 of verse 13. Hear now the living and life-giving word of God. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her. He turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, 
then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 linen, 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Amen. You may be seated. Well, on October 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were tied together and burned at the stake for defying the pro-Roman Catholic agenda of the English Queen Mary, known also as Bloody Mary, and for standing up for the newly Protestant cause in England. These two men had been proponents of the return to Scripture of the Reformation and the consequent theology that came out of the Reformation, started by Luther in Germany and continued by Calvin in Geneva. And Bloody Mary was willing to do whatever it took to take down the growing Protestant and Reformed movement in England, which included burning alive any who would not submit to Roman Catholic authority. As the two men were burning and shouting encouragements of God's faithfulness to each other amidst their flames, Mary undoubtedly had thought that she had snuffed out the Protestant movement's power, sealing its fate with the death of these two faithful reformers. But Mary's desire to kill the Reformation in England by killing Latimer and Ridley only served to further ignite the fire of Latimer and Ridley's reform. So much so that years later, when Mary died, her half-sister Elizabeth assumed the throne and ruled England as a newly Protestant nation. The death of Latimer and Ridley simply paved the way for later English reformers to continue to stir reform in the hearts of the English people. What's incredible is that Mary's actions, meant for her own sinful desires, actually served to propagate an increased sense of reform in England, accomplishing the exact opposite of what Mary had intended. In God's providence, he used the wicked actions of one party to advance 
his righteous agenda. Such is the mysterious beauty of God's providence. Well, we see something similar as we come to our passage this evening. Samson, who's got some very problematic character issues, still serves as Yahweh's instrument of divine deliverance for his people. It seems clear from this particular section of Samson's life, which was also true in the execution of Latimer and Ridley, that the Lord sovereignly uses sinful agents and their sinful actions to accomplish his good and righteous purposes. Now let's remember where we've been so far. We've seen in the book of Judges up to this point that the people whom God set apart and chose to be his own people continually run to the false gods of the very people God said to destroy. What we've observed is the paganization of the ones who are supposed to be in a covenant with Yahweh. Scholars call this the canonization of Israel. How much more of an oxymoron can you have? How can you unite Baal to Yahweh? How unthinkable. And yet, is this not an accurate description of Israel's indifference towards Yahweh and their love for foreign gods? This cycle continues over and over again. And we ask, why doesn't God wipe out his wayward people? Well, where there is incredible sin, even amongst God's own people, God's grace abounds. We've seen the Lord continue to rescue his people out of their self-induced bondage time and time again, demonstrating God's covenant-keeping nature. When Israel does what is right in their own eyes, that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, God preserves his people. When God's people forget their covenant with him, he remains steadfast to keep his covenant which he made out of his abundant love for his chosen people. Paul expounds on this preservation principle in his letter to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, when he tells Timothy, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because he has covenanted himself to his people. Now, as we jump into our passage, I wanted us to look at these last two verses in chapter 13 to see just how God plans to make good on his covenant promise. We see in these two verses that as the young man Samson grew, the Lord blessed Samson and began to stir him in Mahanadan. Now, the Hebrew word here for stir has the sense of disturb or disrupt the peace. From the get-go of the Samson story, we see that Yahweh is seeking to disturb and disrupt the camaraderie between God's people and the wicked Philistines. God clearly was not okay with the flirtatious intermingling between his people and the nearby pagan nations and their gods. And this should tell us right here at the outset of our passage that God is not content when his people become friendly with the things that he hates. He will always disturb and disrupt what we might think is the seemingly harmless peace between us and wickedness. When we begin to get buddy-buddy with our sin, God doesn't stand for it. And like a good covenant keeper, he drags his people out of their bondage to sin and always brings them back to himself. And dear friends, I wonder, even as we start looking at this passage, Are there any sins that we like to be buddy-buddy with? 
this should be our constant conviction as we continue through Judges. Are we, the people of God, flirting with sin and giving our affections to another God, so to speak, to another lover? We know from our study of this book that the Lord will not tolerate his people giving themselves to other lovers. Are there things in your life that you are giving yourself over to that are not God himself? And if they're not God himself, they're therefore not pleasing to God. The story of Judges tells us that if we give ourselves to other lovers, all they do is enslave and abuse us the same way that Israel was enslaved and abused by the foreign peoples with whom they assimilated. If you're flirting with sin, turn from your sin and run back to the God who created you for himself, who loves you and who will preserve you and who will satisfy you far more than any sin could ever keep, could ever promise to do. Well, look at our passage. Look with me firstly in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 14. Samson's insolence. Samson's insolence. We see Samson going down to Timnah, a town that was under Philistine control, and finding a young woman who was right in his eyes, he returns to tell his parents to go get her for him. Look at verse 2. He told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. A little forward, Samson, don't we think? His father and mother put forth some effort with seemingly little conviction and respond with, son, why don't you search out a wife among your own people? They don't seem to remind him of his lifetime Nazarite oath, of his commitment to God, but rather they express mere disappointment in Samson's intermarrying of a foreign people. It seems that Samson wasn't the only one who had a small view of Israel's covenant with God. And clearly he didn't think any more of it. Look at Samson's response in verse 3. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Samson forgets his devotion to God and acts following his own desires. And it's important for us to note the sensual nature with which Samson makes, makes his decisions We know as Christians that we aren't called to live simply to satisfy our senses and fleshly desires. And yet we see Samson here doing exactly that. He's not looking to the Lord, but is acting carnally for the gratification of his flesh. He sees with his eyes that she is right in his sight. He disobeys God's command to not intermarry with pagans and makes his decisions based solely on on satisfying his earthly appetite. Samson's insolent and rash behavior demonstrates his lack of loyalty to Yahweh and complete disregard for Yahweh's commands and shows his selfish, earthly motivations. A clear call to not pursue the things of this world that moth and rust will destroy, but to seek things that bring glory to the Lord, things that will last unlike Samson seeking the fleeting beauty of this Timnite woman. And if we were Israelite readers who didn't know the end of the story, we might be asking, even at this point, is this really our guy? And yet, look at verse 4. Here's the providence. 
his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, for the Philistines ruled over Israel. Do we see how divine providence is greater than the sinful motives and actions of man? God uses Samson's selfish desires to bring about his perfect plans. Samson's actions didn't thwart God's plans, but rather were part of God's plan to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And how often do we forget this? When we experience affliction, which could be the direct result of someone's sin against us, or could simply be due to the effects of the fall, do we know and trust that God works all things together for good. We might ask, how could the Lord be allowing this to happen? How is this what the Lord wants for me or for my loved one who is suffering? How could the Lord possibly use such a terrible and difficult thing? We don't always know God's reasons, and rightly so, because if we did, he wouldn't be the almighty, all-knowing, infinite, eternal God that he is. But friends, what we can take to the bank is that God will always be glorified through our afflictions, and that he uses our afflictions for good. I don't know every affliction we might be going through individually, But what's certain is that the Lord, who isn't the author of sin, uses sin and the effects thereof in the lives of his people in order to produce in us a greater dependence upon him and to make us, shape us more into the image of Christ. Man's actions cannot hinder God's ultimate purposes but instead fall exactly in line with God's plan and how God plans to do what he says he will do. He always shows his glory through it. Secondly, look with me in verses five to nine. We see Samson's malfeasance or his suspicious activity, his wrongdoing. We see in verse five that Samson went down with his father and mother to the vineyards of Timnah, Notice the refrain of went down. We see this throughout this passage, and I think it's an indication of the continued downward progression of Samson's actions, contrasted with God's good grace shown throughout the narrative. Apparently, Samson had separated from his parents and finds himself alone in the vineyards when suddenly he's confronted by a roaring lion. Overcome with the strength of the spirit of the Lord in the face of the young and fierce lion, he tears the lion in pieces with his bare hands like a man tears a young goat. He then nonchalantly continues on his way and ends up in Timnah, casually talking with his future wife as if his experience with the lion was nothing but a minor inconvenience. Uh Uh-oh, there's a lion coming at me? Let me tear him up and go about my business. But what this should cause us to say, my friends, is that we should marvel at the power of God to rush upon Samson and strengthen him to overcome such an enemy. Interesting that Samson's physical strength is being tested here. Interestingly enough, he tells no one about this encounter, but mysteriously and suspiciously keeps it to himself 
and continues down to Timnah to meet up with his bride-to-be, who is as beautiful as he remembers. Well, we see in verse 8 that Samson, having gone home and returning back to Timnah to actually marry this woman, lots of back and forth, now deviates from the path and from his parents, who were evidently with him again, and returns by himself to the carcass of the lion, only to find a community of bees living and thriving and making honey in the carcass. Now, we should be struck by this as well, because dead bodies don't usually produce honey-making bees. Typically, they attract what rotting flesh attracts, which is a great home for bugs and animals that love decomposing matter. Now, the sense of the Hebrew here is to say that Samson came upon the carcass and, whoa, check this out, there were bees making honey in the carcass. This ain't normal. What would a thriving community of bees have to do with a dead body? Well, what we can deduce for sure is that from the abnormal nature of this sign, this is absolutely a sign from God who seems to be demonstrating his ability to bring light and life in dead and dark places. This sign from God seems to serve another purpose, not a lion to test physical strength, but temptation to test Samson's spiritual strength. Does he maintain some sense of integrity? before his covenant God and keep his Nazarite vow by not touching a dead thing? A good Israelite who had taken a Nazarite vow would have avoided anything dead like the plague. But Samson, in the face of temptation, is ensnared by temptation and jumps headfirst into the sin with no concern for the purity of his calling. His eating of the honey stacks three violations against him. He not only touches a dead, unclean animal, breaking the Nazarite oath of Numbers 6-6, but consumes honey that has touched an unclean animal, coming from the clean and unclean laws of Leviticus 11, and then, in a nefarious act of deception, includes his parents in the uncleanness. We should pause and ask the question, when we are faced with temptation, do we acknowledge that temptation recognize what giving in will lead to, and then hightail it as far away as possible? Or do we give in to the temptation with a complete disregard for God and his commandments? As evidenced by Samson's incrimination of his parents in his individual sin, our sins don't happen in a vacuum, but affect people around us. They affect our relationships horizontally with other people. And they affect our relationship, more importantly, vertically with the Lord. We also see that sin not only affects our relationships, but it has exponential consequences, evidenced by the compounding effect of Samson taking the honey from the carcass. His singular action rendered a threefold violation of God's law leaving him guilty on three accounts. God cares about obedience to his law. God cares about purity. Jesus died because of our impurity. Friends, may we think before we give in to temptation. 
so that we might run from temptation and return to the loving and satisfying embrace of our heavenly father who loves us. Well, thirdly, see with me in verses 10 to 18, Samson's arrogance, Samson's arrogance. We see in verse 10 that Samson and his family finally arrive in Timnah for the wedding feast. Studies have been done that show Philistine wedding feasts indeed last for seven days and include much drinking. The text seems to be insinuating that Samson's reckless abandon compared with a seven-day drunken wedding feast equals a massive temptation for a supposed-to-be teetotaling Nazarite. And we've already seen how Samson responds in the face of temptation. And although the text doesn't say it explicitly, we have every reason to believe that Samson commits another Nazarite no-no and partakes in the drinking of alcohol, further indicting himself in his lawlessness and carelessness. Now, it seems that this indulgence hindered his judgment and decision-making abilities because the very next thing he does is engage in a foolish bet with his new Philistine companions. In careless arrogance, drawing on the victories he's achieved and the rash and reckless decisions we've seen him make up to this point, he engages in a foolish riddle for sport and selfish gain to earn 30 linen garments and changes of clothes. Look with me at verse 14. He said to the men, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now on the specific meaning of the riddle, scholars differ. The six Hebrew words that the riddle uh, is comprised of provides a fascinating parallel, many fascinating parallels, and it provoked many scholarly debates But what's clear is that Samson is pulling together the details of his previous encounter with the lion and the honey, about which he has told no one, so that he could completely stump his Philistine friends. How would they have any idea what Samson could be talking about? He's kept all this information to himself. And, unsurprisingly, Samson's cavalier behavior and selfish attitude leads to more trouble for Samson's household. By offering his arrogant riddle, he unknowingly endangers the life of his new wife and his in-laws. Look with me at verse 15. On the fourth day, the men said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Faced with the potential reality of becoming impoverished, the Philistine men threatened to burn down the house of one of their own unless Samson's wife can tell them the answer to the riddle. Facing the threat of her life and her father's, she goes and weeps to Samson, begging to know the answer of the riddle. After some deliberation and a lot of crying, Samson finally tells his new wife the answer of the riddle, which she proceeds to pass on to the Philistine men in order to save her family's house. When these men respond to Samson's riddle at the last minute, right before sundown, verse 18 tells us, they expose Samson's act of Nazaritic defilement. And rather than answering plainly and clearly, they poke fun at his riddle by answering in their own riddle. Look with me at verse 18. 
What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson, recognizing how he's been done dirty, calls out the Philistines by exposing their own deceit and blackmailing his wife. Listen to his response. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Samson's hypocrisy is on full display. Not only does he show disregard for his wife by calling her a heifer, but lacking integrity himself, he throws a fit and gets angry when others who lack integrity do something that impacts impacts him and his own self-interest. I think we can very clearly see from this section that sin begets more sin. We can trace Samson's arrogance through each of his transgressions, all of which seem to dig him deeper and deeper into the muck of conflict with the Philistines and take him further away from the covenant God who consecrated him as holy. Do we think about the after effects of our sin and think through what might happen? Do we seek to be self-focused or seek to be others-focused? Let's imitate Christ in that regard and not follow the foolish, selfish example of Samson who had no regard for his fellow Philistines, his wife, or even his own parents. Let's not repay evil for evil, but aim to please Christ, the one who called us and set us apart for his own glory. Well, fourthly and finally, see with me a violent providence in verses 19 and 20. A violent providence. Samson whines and complains that his riddle has been found out. And in like Samson fashion, rather than being thoughtful in his reaction, is purely emotional and responds by throwing a spirit-induced temper tantrum that results in the slaughter of 30 Philistine men in the coastal city of Ashkelon, about 20 or so miles away from Timnah where he steals the spoil from the recently slaughtered men of that city and gives it to the Riddlers back in Timnah. A lot of effort to make good on a promise, although you really didn't make good on a promise, stealing from the Philistines to give to the Philistines. This violent episode marks the beginning of a string of conflicts Samson will have with the Philistines. Recall, though, how in the midst of this specific conflict, God is indeed doing what he said he would do. All the way back in chapter 13, verse 5, God is using Samson to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And after the slaughter and reluctant exchange of garments, Samson returns home in an angry huff, leaves his wife, and in turn, she is given to Samson's best man, from their wedding. A lot could be said about this narrative as a whole, but it's important to note the similarity between the person of Samson and the people of Israel as a whole. Samson acts as a sort of personification of Israel, doesn't he? He is continually influenced by the pagan Philistines and has a particular affinity for their women, which results in his mixing together with them, just like Israel. Instead of being completely separate and set apart by God, both Samson and the people of Israel 
unite themselves to foreign nations to produce some kind of homogenous pagan Israelite blend, which is exactly what Yahweh called Israel not to do. And Samson especially not to do. Like Israel, who was elect by God to be his chosen people, Samson, marked out from the womb to be a Nazarite, wholly devoted to God, is seduced by the attractiveness and idolatry of the pagan nations around him and does what is right in his own eyes instead of keeping covenant with Yahweh. The Samson story, filled with all of its questionable deeds and character flaws and selfish motives, begs for a better redeemer. And just as Samson's sinful actions served God's greater purpose of rescuing Israel from the Philistines, so too the true Messiah was tried and crucified by sinful men who were seeking to advance their own political and religious agenda. But in killing the man Jesus, they actually served as God's divine instruments of accomplishing salvation for any and all who trust in that Messiah. Praise the Lord that you and I have a redeemer who resists temptation, not one who indulges his carnal appetite. A redeemer who acts not out of selfish gain, but out of a selfless humility, seeking the salvation of his people. Samson could only save Israel from the wicked Philistines, but Jesus rescues us from wickedness itself who took the penalty for our sins and bore them and paid for them completely on the cross so that we could take his place and be called sons of God. We have a redeemer who sovereignly holds all things together and works all things together for our good and for our glory. It's the Joseph principle from Genesis 50. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. This is the redeemer that you and I look to, friends, who means all things for good. May we learn from Samson what not to do and trust in the good and better Samson, the one who is the redeemer of all God's elect. Let's pray. Gracious God, we know that you told us in your word that when your word goes out, it will not return void but will accomplish the very purpose for which you sent it. Oh Lord, we pray that your word has indeed done heart surgery on us this evening, that it would transform us, that it it has transformed us, and that it would sanctify us, Lord, that we would see the person of Christ in the scriptures, the true and better Samson. Lord, help us to run to that redeemer, for he is the only one who can satisfy any of our desires. Lord, we ask all these things in his precious name and for his sake.